and welcome to Football Scotland Daily, the podcast that brings you all the big news, analysis and debate Monday to Friday, just in time for your daily commute. I'm Jules Boyle and joining me today is the Grand Master of Football Scotland himself, Mr Johnny McFarlane, and making his debut in the show after his scouting mission around Italy, it's the young buck of the team, Gaby Mackay. Hello lads. Yeehaw. Ciao. On the show today we've got a lot to talk about, and um, first we're going to start coming up about the Rangers situation and the fact that John Flanagan has been cited by the SFA for his elbow on Scott Brown, but Jozo Simonovic has not been cited for a similar sort of incident against Jermaine Defoe. Um, Rangers fans are up in arms about it, is there a case to answer? Also, we've got Steve Clark today, there's been a report that the SFA are going to be approaching him officially for the job of the Scotland manager. Um, is he going to stay at Kilmarnock? Does he actually even want the job? And also, David Hopkin is the new Morton manager, and we're going to have a look, is that a good appointment for them, and is he going to manage to bring them back up again? So, first of all, um, let's look at Rangers. Um, obviously, the situation is, um, you've got John Flanagan, everyone saw it on the camera, um, the referee obviously deemed it as only merit in a yellow. Um, what's now happened is the SFA have looked at it and decided it's a red card, and he's looking at a two-game ban. Um, Rangers fans aren't pleased, especially because Joseph Simonovich had a very similar incident. Um, what do you think, first of all, um, the incident for Flanagan? Red card or not? Was it necessary, Johnny? Oh, it was a red card. Of course it was a red card. Now, you can look at the IFAB rules for violent conduct. And I'm going to quote them. I'm going to bore everyone. But here they are. Violent conduct is when a player uses or attempts to use excessive force or brutality against an opponent when not challenging for the ball. We can go into more detail about this um, because it also says, in addition, a player who, when not challenging for the ball, deliberately strikes an opponent or any other person on the head or face with the arm or hand is guilty of violent conduct unless the force used was negligible. Now, there's two things from that. Did John Flanagan strike Scott Brown on the face or was it the neck? Hard to tell from the footage I've seen. Probably I would say it was in the face, but also could be construed to be on the neck. And secondly, did he use excessive force or brutality? Now, brutality is defined as an act which is savage, ruthless, or deliberately violent. I think if we're going by the letter of the law, it's probably quite difficult to say that it was savage, ruthless, or deliberately violent, especially when you look at the other um, instances of this violent conduct and how it's been construed by the SFA. However, I do think the area where they will get him, because Rangers are appealing it, is on the fact that it was the face or the head, and it wasn't negligible force. So I think, yes, it was a red card. Yes, if you look at the letter of, of the law, it was a red card. And I think Rangers are going to struggle to get it um, overturned. And I don't think Rangers fans are that bothered about that. I think generally, you look at social media, they seem to think that it's, a, it's fair enough. I think the problem comes in when, if you take it from a Rangers pan, fan's point of view, they look at the Joseph Suminovich incident and they think, well, there's double standards here. Yeah, well, I mean, that's obviously the issue is that Rangers fans have because Flanagan can have no complaints. He was stupid with what he did. The Simunovic one, I can see the point. I mean, he definitely lashed out at Defoe. It's kind of difficult to tell. He might argue that he was just trying to sort of nudge him out of the way with his elbow. But if you look at it, he does sort of seem to have a little glance over at him. He does seem to swing his elbow. And I think he's very lucky to avoid being cited for that and to avoid being given a, a charge for that. And obviously, as well, the Rangers fans, as you said, Johnny, um, they seem to be sort of okay about the fact that Flanagan's been cited, but it's more the fact that Jozo wasn't. Do you think they've got an actual case to, uh, against the SFA for that? Listen, I don't think that there is any kind of institutional bias at the SFA. I don't believe that. I've met Claire White myself, and she didn't strike me as someone that has 
any interest in football really at all. She's a lawyer. And her it's lucky that she didn't strike you because she'd have had to cite herself. <laughs> <laughs> and her background is in you know legal issues and, and and looking at the fine detail of the paperwork and and deciding whether or not something falls within a legal framework to be to be processed. I don't I don't believe there is any kind of agenda against Rangers as perhaps has been suggested with Rangers statement. But I understand why Rangers fans feel the way they do, because there has been a significant um, amount of coverage of the Flanagan incident from the get-go, from the minute it happened. And there hasn't been this same kind of coverage about the incident with uh, Simunovic. Now, where does that start? Is that the TV company's not making a big enough deal out of it, not picking up the two issues and covering them the same way? And why is that? Again, I don't think it is actually any kind of conspiracy. I think the problem here is that Scott Brown is box office. You know, when something happens to Scott Brown, it's a huge issue. It was clear what happened because there was multiple camera angles at the time. I don't think there was the same level of camera angles. I've only seen one angle of uh, the the, um, clash between Simunovic and Defoe. And to be honest, I don't think it is quite as clear cut as the Flanagan incident. Uh, Now, that might change if there's another view that that comes up, I don't know. But from the views that I've seen today, it's not quite as clear-cut. So I think there's reasons for it, but you have to understand where Rangers fans are coming from. They're coming from a Rangers point of view. They're not looking at it like balanced, objective journalists like we try to be. And and listen, that's great. That's what that's what this is. This country is all about. It's all about the the bants and the and the, the animosity. And you know that's that's football. And you take that away, what have we got left? Is it possible that the SFA have just done it to try and incite a statement from Rangers? <laughs> <laughs> because we all know those are concomitant with hilarity. Indeed. Well, where are Rangers sitting on the statement league at the moment? Perhaps they've thought we want to top this this year. Yeah, I think they're going for ten in a row in the statement <laughs> league, aren't they? <laughs> this month. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, obviously, as Johnny says there, um, Gaby, um, they, they have they have got a, a legitimate grievance, I think, to to complain about it, but it has been um, decided not to be. What, what do you think the SFA's reasoning on 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 the Jose one is, and is it is it fair? I would assume that it's like Johnny said. I assume it's not as clear cut an incident. I mean, I certainly don't think you know Rangers saying that they think that. I said in the statement, I can't remember the exact words, I don't have it in front of me, but it's as if uh, they're not being treated the same as other clubs, which is just nonsense. I mean, you know, paranoia of the highest order. Um, I think it wasn't quite as clear. I do think it was a red card, and I do think he should have been cited, but he wasn't. Uh, There's two games of the season to go. Does it matter? I mean, could we all just calm down, really? (laughs) Probably not, is the answer. Probably not. Um, This does seem to be a recurring theme in in this season. There is a lot of... um, retrospective action happening, a lot of retroactive red cards, a lot of decisions either being missed or, or disagreed with. Um, what do you think the situation is that, Johnny? Well, my big problem with this is that we shouldn't be getting involved with decisions that the referee has made on the pitch. Mm-hmm. Now, that's very clear in Law 5 of the game that the referee's decision is final. And my concern is when a player's been booked for an incident, the referee has made their call on that incident. And I, and I think we're getting into very blurry, murky lines when we're going back over instance that a referee has seen. But isn't it? I mean, but football by itself and the laws by themselves are blurry. I mean, it depends. The referee might have seen it, but he might not have had a very good view of it. I mean, you look at one earlier in the season, Derry McKinnon for Hamilton against Kilmarnock putting an absolutely shocking tackle, and I think it was Gary Dicker, and he got booked. It was clearly a red card. They looked at it again, and he got a suspension because it was clearly a red card. Now, that referee, I'm sure if he'd seen that video, rather than the view he had on the day, would have said, that's a red card. Because you've got to remember, the referee... 
his position on the pitch isn't the same as the cameras. I, rem- I remember hearing uh, Howard Webb saying that when he didn't send off De Jong in that World Cup final, he said, well, the thing is, I didn't see it. I would have done if I'd seen it. So I agree with you about the point that, yeah, the referee's decision on the pitch is final, but that in itself is a grey area because if the referee sees an incident but doesn't see it correctly, doesn't have the best view, he's not in the best position, his decision might be different if he'd had a better view of it. My concern is that the pressure that the referees are under when on a Monday morning they get a call saying, mate, (laughs) we are looking at this decision that you've made with regards to John Flanagan and we want to know, did you see it properly? I think at that point, sports scene have highlighted highlighted it. Michael Stewart's had his say. Stephen Thompson's had his say. Chris Sutton's been on Twitter making a making a um, comment about it, and it's blown up. You're going to be a brave man to say, actually, I did see it, and uh, my interpretation was that it wasn't brutality. Uh, it was on the neck, not on the face, and therefore it's a yellow card. My concern is that the, the human, the natural human reaction would be to say. Um, you know what? Yeah, let's let's look at it again because that's that's the easiest scenario, um, and, and I think that's totally understandable. And that's an, an issue with VAR that I'm I'm concerned about. You know uh, that that a VAR referee comes in and says, "By the way, that was that was a penalty. Uh, that was a guaranteed penalty," and uh, the referee is then having to look at it and he's thinking. Well, the VAR are saying it. I'm not sure. And it he doesn't have to look at it, though. He's got the choice. He yeah. can say, no, I saw it. It's fine. I agree with you. You saw it in the World Cup, especially, that when they went to the screen, if they'd been called to the screen, they would generally change their decision. But I think that was because it was a new thing. If you look at, in countries which has been for a while, Portugal, Germany, Italy, a lot of the time they will go to the screen and look at it and stick with their original decision. So I know this isn't a VAR chat, but just purely on that, I'm not sure that's uh, long-term, that's such an issue. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we'll get into VAR when it comes in eventually, and I'm sure it'll be an absolute cluster beep um, trying to wade our way through the myriad rules uh, that I have, uh, that IFAB have for that. But that's another day, I suppose. It is indeed. Um, and just to kind of close up on this uh, before we move on to another topic, is, do you think there is a danger of the referee's authority being diminished with, with these calls constantly being made and then either made a call and then it comes back and they've been told, no, you've got that wrong, this person's getting done for this? No, I don't think so, because I think, surely, if you're a referee, what you want, first and foremost, is to get a decision right. If you get a decision wrong and you have an opportunity to correct it, I don't think that undermines your authority at all. It shows that measures are in place to correct things that referees have got wrong, because they're only human and they will make mistakes. So I don't see how it undermines their authority any more than, you know, a manager making a mistake and correcting it the next week undermines their authority. I agree with Gabby on that. However, I do think this compliance officer has taken it to extremes this season. I think we're going back over too much, and I think that needs to be looked at. It needs to go back to where it was perhaps the season before when I think it was Vincent Lunny or uh, who was in charge, and it was a less hands-on uh, tackling of uh, the disciplinary system. I just think there's too much controversy, too much going back over decisions, and I think we've got the balance slightly wrong this year. It's a new compliance officer, so she's just feeling out how the system works and getting to grips with it. And every person that comes in, uh, the word from the SFA, every, everyone who comes in has a different take on what that role should be and what they should do and how they should apply the rules. There's been three compliance officers now and they've all taken different opinions on it. That's that's classic lawyers. Um, and, and I think it's quite clear from the reaction from the fans 
the paying public who are the most important people that um, people aren't that happy with the way it's been handled this year and, and I think we need to dial it back a little bit. Uh, well, moving on, uh, we have the, the potential thorny topic of uh, Steve Clark and the reports today we ran the story in Football Scotland that uh, he's potentially going to get the offer to manage the Scotland team, which has obviously been rumoured for months and months. Um, it's almost the end of the season and is he going to leave Kilmarnock for Scotland? Is he going to take the job? Um, first and foremost, would he want it? Um, Gaby? Well, those are the two questions, I think. So the question, the first question would be, would the SFA want him as the manager? And I think clearly he is the outstanding candidate. The second is, would he want that job? And that's, I would be honestly surprised if he took that job. I think he's too young to take that job. I think it's 56. More, yeah, in manager terms. Think, well, it's an old man's... Retirement in four years. <laughs> no, in managerial terms, it's an old man's game. It's not a full-time job. We all know that. Craig Levine said that he was bored doing it because he didn't get any time with the players. Any manager who's been in club management at you know that kind of age or maybe a bit younger, Antonio Conte, Italy was the same. He said he couldn't stand not having time with the players. And that's the thing about Steve Clark is he is a training ground manager. You look at Kilmarnock, everybody knows the story, but they were bottom of the league, three points from nine games when he took over with almost essentially the same squad, one or two players. He's taken them to currently third in the league with the one game to go. So I think the issue that his strength clearly is working on the training ground. Stephen Gerrard said that, that he worked with him at Liverpool, that his sessions were always excellent. And at Scotland, he will not get that time on the training ground. Now, at Kilmarnock, his stock's as high as it's ever been. He said that he thinks he has unfinished business in England. So why would he now leave Kilmarnock to take the Scotland job when he's never going to have a better chance of getting a good job in England where he said that he wants to work again? No, I think that's fair enough and it may well be that Steve Clark wants to move back down south and we know that his family is based down south and he uh, is missing them and that's perfectly normal. Uh, but, you know, you can live down south with your family and still come back up and be Scotland manager, as we saw with Gordon Strachan. Although, to be fair, I think it's quite funny, some of the people that were slaughtering Gordon Strachan for that and not being connected enough to the Scottish game are the same ones now saying, ah, oh, Steve Clark can do it from down south, don't worry about it, because they want Steve Clark as Scotland manager. I think Gaby makes a really, really good point, and this cuts to the heart of, I think, the, 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 the poor nature of the list that the SFA have put together. The four names that we have are McInnes, Clark, Gemmell, and Jack Ross. How many of those managers have international management experience? Yeah, but none of them. None. Well, Gemmell with the under-21. Under, well, yeah, so none. Um, that, for me, is an issue. Every single one of those managers is therefore a gamble. Never mind qualifying for a, for a tournament. Now, it's easy to look at Steve Clark and say he's a guy who can organise brilliantly... Um, he's a guy who will get the group working for him because he's done that at Kilmarnock and you could apply the same to Derek McInnes. But both of those guys are renowned for working with the players, working with them on the training ground, especially Clark. And as Gaby says, you just don't get that time for Scotland. Scotland, you're more of a figurehead. That's why Alex McLeish was so good the first time around because he's a big character, he's a man-manager, um, he's good with the media... That's the key stuff for the Scotland manager. Derek McInnes, I think, in some ways is more suited for that than uh, Steve Clark. And if we're talking about these four candidates, um, then perhaps he is a better fit. But I think most people, if you talk to fans on the street, would want Steve Clark. 
I think so. I think so. Well, let's look at those other candidates as well, because obviously they, there's you know there are a lot of people desperate for certain people and who they want in, and Steve Clark seems to be the top on most folks' list. Um, the next up, as you say, is probably Derek McInnes. Um, he seems a very popular choice. He's obviously done well at Aberdeen. He's just said recently that he's very happy at Aberdeen. He's looking for the next season. He's looking to plan ahead and start getting players in. Um, what's your thoughts on Derek McInnes for that job, Gabby? Well, he's obviously done a good job at Aberdeen, but I think his skill set isn't necessarily suited to the players Scotland have. You look at players like Ryan Fraser, we've actually got a lot of good attacking talent coming through. And McInnes is great at setting up a team to be organised, hard to beat, direct, physical. He's done a great job at Aberdeen. And when I say these things, it isn't a knock on him, it's mm. just what he's done. But you look at, and I'll take as an example, Greg Stewart. Now, I'm not saying Greg Stewart should be playing for Scotland, but you look at him when he was at Kilmarnock, he was one of the best players in the league. He went back to Aberdeen after not impressing there last season and he hasn't impressed at all in the second half of the season, although I know he scored at the weekend. So if you've got a team, a Scotland team of kind of young, promising, attacking players, is Derek McInnes the man you want in charge of those players? Because he hasn't shown in his career so far that he knows how to get the best out of those players. He would definitely make Scotland harder to beat and that could be an advantage when it comes to the playoff that we've got. But I'm not sure he's the man to get the best out of the players who are currently available. There's a, there's a thing that we see in football all the time, which is you react to your previous manager. So Pedro Cusina comes in because Rangers wanted to bring something different, to bring a European sensibility, um, to bring someone who could give them a bit of uh, gravitas. And then when he fails... You go for someone who is understands the British game because because Kashina didn't understand it. Bring someone who does understand it, and you. See, I mean, that's probably a poor example to be honest. But you see it all the time. Clubs are going from one extreme to another, and then back, and then back again. And after Alex McLeish, the natural inclination for people is to say we need someone who can get us organised, who can make us difficult to beat because we've just been pumped three 0 by Kazakh bloody Stan. So people are going well. At least if we have a sort of Craig Brown-like manager in there who's going to get them organised in two banks of four with one guy sitting behind in a number 10 position so it's really organised, really difficult to break down, then at least we're not going to go through nights like that again. But as Gaby says, look, we've got great attacking players. You know, Ryan Fraser is an excellent player. James Forrest is a good attacking player. We've got Lee Griffiths, if he gets himself back, is a a top-quality striker. The midfielders we have... Are, tend to be more creative so you look at even our fullbacks um, so I think there needs to be a respect for that when we're talking about who should be the Scotland manager and for me none of these names fill me with a lot of um, confidence that, that all the boxes are being ticked I mean to be honest if we get further down the list Scott Gemmell I mean that's just that's like, ridiculous that's ridiculous in terms of CV Oh, it seems to me that it's entirely just because England appointed their under-21 yeah. manager, Gareth Southgate, and they got to the semi-final. So they're just like, oh, well, uh, they did that and it'll work. There's no evidence in Scott Gemmell's career that he has anything to coach the national team. There's no evidence that he's anything like Gareth Southgate. I mean, Gareth Southgate at least had managed a club, not particularly in the pre- In the Premier League. Yeah, whereas Scott... I mean, what, what has Scott Gemmell done? Why is he on that list? It's just because look, they've looked down south, seen a success there and gone, oh, well, we'll go with that. The other name that's on the list, Jack Ross. I find it almost daily that I'm just flabbergasted by the amount of love that is out there for for Jack Ross. A guy who has achieved a championship win with St Mirren. He did okay with Aloha, did fine with Aloha, did a good job with them. But Aloha are a well-run club. There's a number of managers who have done very well at Aloha. Ian Murray was the next big thing coming out of Aloha. 
Who's the next big thing coming out of Aloha? It's Jim Goodwin. It's because Aloha are a good club. It's like Ross County. They're quite similar. People go in there. Even Jim McIntyre looked good at Ross County. You know, so he's gone down to Sunderland, League One, and he's not even qualified. With a, I believe it's a thirty-five million pounds a year wage budget. And people say, well, Sunderland's a basket case. It's League One. Yeah, they're in there with teams like Portsmouth and stuff as well. And if you speak to St Mirren fans, and I know a few, they think very highly of Jack Ross. Now, I do agree with you that I think he's being uh, slightly overrated. But, you know, they did storm to that title with St Mirren. They played some really good football. He had guys like Lewis Morgan playing really well. And, you know, Sunderland is a basket case. I mean, they went from the Premier League straight down everybody's seen the Netflix documentary. So to come in there and try and steady that ship, it's not easy. I know it's a huge club and they've got a big budget and it's League One, but I don't think it's as easy as just coming in there and getting them straight up. Listen, Gary Caldwell took Wigan to the top of that league. In similar circumstances, Wigan had had gone pretty much straight down. They were in free fall. And he brutalised that league. And nobody talks with the same level of... uh, excitement about Gary Caldwell um, and what we also have here is David Hopkin going over to Morton obviously done very very well when he was at the time at Livingston they moved down south he's back up here um, Morton are obviously uh, holding out for a bit of a, a saviour here and looking for some help um, is he the man he, he revitalised the ton? I think it's a really really good appointment um, if you look at Morton they've not been in the premiership in my lifetime that I can I can recall um, certainly not while I've been a football fan so their 27, 28, 29 years that I can recall them being in the top flight. And uh, they're a club that have traditionally been a big club in Scottish football. Um, And you've got a guy here who gets a team really fit, gets a team really organised. He's got a good eye for player. He got Halkett in uh, at Livingston when he was there. Uh, And he took Livingston from uh, League League 1 into the Championship and then into the Premier League. Now, it didn't go very well for him at uh, Bradford. I don't know a lot of the detail about that, to be honest. I think he he himself resigned, um, so he clearly wasn't that happy or either with the job he was doing or, or the circumstances surrounding that. But the job that he did at Livingston was nothing short of miraculous. And it was well, I mean, hang on. They were, they were the, probably the only full-time club in League One, so you can't be having a go at Jack Ross for not getting Sunderland promoted. I mean, yeah, let, I know he did two promotions in a row, and it was a great achievement, but I'm not sure how good an achievement it was to get Livingston, the only professional club in the league, promoted from League you're One. A, you're absolutely right, Gaby. And when I say it's miraculous, I'm not talking about League One. I'm talking about what he did in the Championship and what he left for Kenny Miller, who came in, and subsequently Gary Holt. Because Livingston have been a comfortable Premier Premiership side this season. And that's what I mean. The players that he had there, he got the absolute best out of them. He developed them. So it wasn't just getting up in that League One season. Of course, full-time football. It's what he did in the Championship and what he did subsequently in terms of what he left. That is the true judge of a good manager. What they leave behind for the next one. Yeah, would you say Livingston still, still reaping the benefits of his style of play and his players that he's well, brought in? Well, style of play, I think, is different because, I mean, and again, this isn't really a criticism because they'd come straight up and they got straight up. But, I mean, they played brutal football when mm. they were in the championship. It was effective, but, you know, they had big Lithgow and Halkett at the back. And Miller came in and I think tried to change it as player manager. I mean, it's weird. Like, this is, if this season's gone on so long, Kenny Miller was the Livingston <laughs> manager at the start of this season. Yeah. Like, we've all just forgotten that. <laughs> uh, 
And then Gary Holt came in, and they're still sort of defensive and reactive, but I think they're a lot less um, sort of route one than they were under Hopkins. So at Morton, who obviously have been struggling badly this season, he might very well be the right man to come in and make them hard to beat, get them on a sort of sound of footing and get them, you know, back up again. But, you know, I'd, I think if Morton fans are expecting to see uh, good football, I'm not sure he's the man to deliver that. Listen, I'm a big advocate of good football. But Morton have had a manager that is known for good football. A good friend of Gaby McKay's called <laughs> Kenny Shields, <laughs> who who is a terrific coach and can coach attractive football. And we saw that when Kenny Shields was at Kilmarnock. But he failed miserably at Morton. And sometimes I think, you know, it's quite difficult to adopt a progressive playing style when you're in that league. The championship can be a war of attrition. So perhaps... That is why David Hopkin takes on that approach, and he's very effective at it. Um, I was speaking to um, Callum Carson, who's the West Lothian Couriers reporter today, about uh, what Morton fans can expect from Hopkin. And he was saying, you know, his tactical style was back three, three in midfield, really tighten up the game, make it really congested and difficult in there, and get the players really, really organised and really, really fit, exceptionally fit. And you immediately see the difference and in terms of the fighting spirit in the team that he also in, in puts in there. Uh, and I think that's what Morton, to be honest, that's what Morton needs. It's not what I would want to see as a, as a, as a, as a paying fan. Um, I would like to see progressive fancy football, but you know, Morton are a team that just need to get themselves into that Scottish Premiership, don't they? Yeah, They're a big club with a big, you know, a big fan base potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think the Morton fans will welcome what Hopkins brings to the team? I think if it's uh, successful, then they definitely will. I mean, just to go back to what Johnny was saying about the style of play, I absolutely agree. I watched the second leg of the playoff win against Partick Thistle, and they were so organised, so well drilled. I mean, they looked about a foot taller than all the Partick Thistle players. It's very sort of meat and potatoes. You know what you're going to get, but it certainly seems to be effective. And I think, you know, Martin fans have been served as successful so long, as Johnny says, it is a big club. It's one that the fans certainly probably feel should be in the top flight, never mind kicking around near the bottom of the championship. So I think they'll welcome it if it's successful. It's the same with any football fans, you know. Everybody wants to see good football, but firstly, you want to see winning football. Get the points on the board, exactly. Do you think, honestly, is Hopkins the man to get them into the top flight? Is that a realistic uh, ambition for the club to have at this point? I think it's going to take time, you know. Um, Morton have clearly not had a particularly good season. Uh, I don't know how many players he's got. He might have a load of players at a contract. You know, at that level, a lot of players are uh, living on a year-to-year contracts. So you'll have to get in players that fit his philosophy, that fit his style of play. And he, So a lot will depend on what's available for him in the transfer market. Um, again, from uh, from that conversation I had today, um, I was told that he has got a very good record for bringing players in and developing those players. Um, so I think Morton fans can be optimistic uh, about that. But for me, if they are in the playoffs this time next year, he'll have done a fantastic job. And it's all about progression as a manager. It doesn't matter if you're a football manager or you're a manager of something else. If you're improving slowly but surely, something's going well. And the thing with you all about the championship, and we've seen it in recent years with Dundee United, with Hibs, with Rangers even, it's a really difficult league to get out of. There's only 10 teams in it. There's only one automatic promotion place. You look at uh, just towards the end of last season, I think uh, two two games to go, every team could either get promoted or relegated. It's a really, really tough league. So it'll be difficult to, to go up. But as Johnny says, I think if they see progression, that's the, that's the main thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, okay, we're almost finished up for... 
Okay, we're almost finished up for the day. Um, we've got one more thing to talk about, and it is obviously the Scotland women's football team for the World uh, World Cup 2020. It was announced today, um, and we're looking ahead to that. Basically, are you excited about Scotland in a national? Are you excited about seeing Scotland in a global tournament for the first well, time in a long time? Let me tell you, Jules, I was 16 the last time Scotland qualified for a World Cup. Um, so I'm lucky enough at 37 to be able to say that I went and watched Scotland in a pub. I shouldn't have been there, but I managed to sneak in. I, I, I looked about 40 when I was 16. So <laughs> I was six. Look about, Coke, Coke and crisps. <laughs> look, look about 60 now. Um, Not the same age I was. <laughs> but... I feel, really feel for this next generation that I've never had that. And, you know, one of the big excitements of my life was contemplating uh, in 2008 the, the, the possibility of following Scotland to uh, uh, Euro 2000. Was it Euro 2008? It would have been, yeah. yeah. It was in 2008 when obviously Scotland came so, so close. I and mean, we, beat, we beat France and then fell uh, against Georgia. I remember saying to my, my wife at the time, you know, by the way, I'm going. <laughs> So I mean that's the problem. If we get if we get through this playoff for the next tournament, where are we going? Uh, Hamden. <laughs> um, we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> Sorry, not to take it away from women's football there. Yes, but but given that, I think it'd be churlish um, to say that anything it's anything but very exciting because we just haven't had anything like that at a World Cup. So so it's great to see um, the women's team. I think obviously Shelley Kerr's had a phenomenal impact. The fact that she's nominated for the Manager of the Year at the Football Writers, I think tells you everything you need to know about the way she's uh, seen in the media. And I think there's a lot of good, talented, young uh, female footballers on that side. You've got Erin Cuthbert, who's at Chelsea, um, who's looking like a star player in world football at that level now. And um, there's a lot of players in there with... Um, with a lot of quality and it's just a case of fingers crossed and certainly we'll be covering it at Football Scotland and hoping that the nation gets behind them in a big way because listen it might be a wee while yet before we're uh, cheering on the men's uh, the men's team so make the most of it I would say yeah and I think it's a really good time for people to get involved I think women's football's having a bit of a moment right now you've seen uh, the Juventus Stadium the Calderon Atletico Madrid both the Juventus and Atletico Madrid women's teams sold out their stadium so I think it's a really good time to for people to be kind of getting on board. I think it's having a bit of a moment right now. And I think Scotland having qualified for the World Cup gives us something to get excited about in the summer, gives us a bit of football to watch in a summer where there isn't otherwise. So, yeah, I think it's a really exciting thing. Absolutely. Summer football and Scotland involved. And you can't really ask for much more than that, can you? Um, Okay, that was us for the day. Thanks very much for everyone that's joined us today, Mr John McFarlane and Gary Mackay. That's all for us here at Football Scotland today. We'll be back tomorrow before 4pm, just in time for you to make your daily work commute that little bit more bearable. You can get more for us at the Football Scotland website or our social media channels on Facebook and Twitter at Football Scotland. To ask a question or make a comment to us individually, you can give me pelters on at Captain underscore Howdy. And if you want to single out any of the crew for abuse, you can get Johnny on... At Johnny R. McFarlane. And Gaby on... At Gaby Mackay, an imaginative Twitter handle there. Thank you very much. Until tomorrow, cheers for listening.